You know, when I was first saved in uh, 2007, I really had a strong preference for the contemporary songs, the songs that sounded more modern, that sounded a little bit more hip. And uh, I found that as I've, um, by the grace of God, as I've grown in my knowledge and understanding of God's word and, and his will, I have come to appreciate those old hymns a lot more and more to the point now that I actually prefer those old hymns. Um, call me old fashioned, if you will. But uh, I, I love being able to sing songs like Great is Thy Faithfulness. Well, this morning we're going to continue um, in our study of Ephesians, but we're actually not going to spend a whole lot of time in Ephesians. Um, I hope you uh, brought your track shoes because I'm going to take you through a lot of verses. In fact, for that reason, um, I put together slides that will show you the verses that um, I'm taking you through so that you don't, uh, you don't have to get a paper cut as you're flipping through your Bibles. Um, so I'm going to have them up there. We're going to go through a lot of verses this morning. I trust that it will be worth it, though. We're not going to dig deep into any one verse. And my goal this morning is to encourage you because it is a great privilege and blessing to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. But I, I think I most people don't even understand just how how much of a blessing that is, just just how central this theme of God's presence is, as it found throughout the Bible. Um, the central theme that God is present uh, with his people can be found from beginning all the way to the end and certainly today through the church. Now, of course, uh, someone might hear that and say, well, God is omnipresent, though. By omnipresent, that means God is everywhere. So, I mean, to say that he's present here is kind of redundant because he's present everywhere. Well, that is true. But he is present in a very specific way for his people. He is present in a way that is a blessing to his people, where he glorifies himself to his people and through his people. You know, as an example, we talk about the concept of heaven and hell, and people often portray hell as a place that, where God's present, presence is absent. And that's actually not true. Who is it, do you think, that keeps those fires burning? Um, it is God himself, but in, the, in a place like hell, what they are missing is the blessed presence that God's people get to enjoy. What they see instead is wrath and anger and really the outpouring of God's justice upon the sinfulness of mankind. Um, so there is a special blessing that comes when God is amongst his people, and that is certainly true here and at any church where God's people get together. And I want to help you to see that through a multitude of verses throughout the Old Testament and even the New. And I want this to be an encouragement. I want you to be able to see this and not be able to view church the same ever again. Um, to be able to help you to see that church is not something that we simply just go to on Sunday mornings, but church is a place where God promises he is present, where he is worshipped in spirit and in truth, and where his word is being proclaimed uh, accurately and faithfully. He is most certainly present. Now, as you see in your sermon outline, um, I have mentioned Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. We'll take a look at those in just a moment. Uh, and the title for this morning's sermon is The Dwelling Place of God. Um, I, I want to be able to highlight the specific blessings that we have from God's presence uh, with his people as seen throughout Scripture. Um, so we can have a right view of the church. And it's going to start, uh, we see four points there in your, in your bulletin there. And the first is going to be God's presence in the garden. But before I do that, let's go ahead and take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 19 to 22. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, and it's up here on the slide. And you will notice that there are certain phrases that are underlined. 
There are certain phrases and words that are underlined as we go through. This is really the conclusion of uh, Paul's message here that started back in verse 11 going to verse 22. And as we read it again, starting in verse 19, he writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And what you'll see is that all the words and phrases that are underlined pertain specifically to building terminology. It's building and structures. And in fact, you can even include at the end of verse 19, God's household. But God's household, verse 20, we've been built on the foundation. At the end of verse 20, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Verse 21 mentions the whole building and that we're growing into a holy temple. Verse 22, that we're being built together into a dwelling of God. This has very rich Old Testament significance. And for those who understand the Old Testament who have gone through it, you will see that this is actually one of the central themes of the Bible from start to end. And we're going to take a look at that. So let's start with our first point, God's presence in the garden. God's presence in the garden. And if you take a look at the first verse that I have highlighted here, this is Genesis 2.15. In Genesis 2.15, after God had created man, we see man's purpose. Verse 15 says that the Lord took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So this was before the fall of man. This shows that even before the fall of man, that God had a specific purpose of work with regards to man, that we would cultivate and keep the garden as was the case with Adam. But obviously following that, there was the fall. There was the temptation from the serpent. And then Eve took of the fruit. And then Adam ended up taking of the fruit. And then we see judgment being pronounced upon mankind. And then starting in Genesis 3, verse 14, you see that in the same slide. Genesis 3, verse 14, we see the pronouncement of judgment from God to the serpent. And this should be familiar to you. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. But then to the woman, verse 16, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So we see not only the pronouncement of judgment upon the serpent, but also upon the woman, the pain in child-rearing, the, the, the tension that we feel within marriage, women wanting the temptation of taking over in terms of the, the, the marriage hierarchy, but the man would rule over the woman. And then going to the next set of verses, verse 17. Verse 17 is the judgment upon man, upon Adam. He said, then to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
We see in these verses the pronouncement, the, the judgment given to Adam. And it, we see very clearly that prior to the fall, though Adam was called to keep and cultivate the ground, that it would be very fruitful. But part of the curse is that man would have to labor greatly for that same fruit. That work would be very difficult. It would be very hard. And then verse 19 right there talks about death. For Adam was, had life breathed into him from dust. God used dust to breathe life into him. And it says here that he shall return to dust. So in today's age, when people want to live as long as possible and they want to cheat death or they want to consider death to just be some sort of cycle of life, let me point out to you here that what we see is that death is not a natural cycle of life. It is God's curse upon mankind because of sin. The fact that everyone dies is a reminder that we are all sinners. But we see the curse here, but it continues on. When we look at verse 23, the next, uh, next slide here, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. What I want you to see here is that man was taken out of the garden, not only taken out of the garden, but God made sure that he would never return. See, in the garden, there was a special presence of God that was going to bless their existence. But now the pronouncement of judgment, that life would be hard, that their work would be hard, that, that, their, that the fruits of the ground would not come nearly as easily, and that death would be a part of their existence. That was all part of what happened when they were taken out of the Garden of Eden. And the fact that there's a cherubim here with a flaming sword, it's very interesting that cherubim, we won't go into detail about this, but when cherubim are mentioned, most often the presence of God is implied. You see that with the tabernacle, you're going to see that with the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant, which was a big box with two poles that ran through it, had two angels on top, those were the cherubim. And in the Temple of Solomon, in the Holiest of Holies, there were two statues of cherubim created in the Holiest of Holies. It was very significant of God's presence whenever cherubim are mentioned, a very special class of angels who are considered to be closest to God. But as we continue on, from there, after Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden, then we fast forward to the days of Abraham. And we know the Abrahamic covenant. We know the promise that God gave to Abraham. Now that man has lost that special presence of God, God is going to give that promise back to Abraham and his descendants. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 is the start of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 1, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we see there in verse 3 that God's plan was always not just for Israel, but always for all the families of the earth, meaning even Gentiles as well. And then when we fast forward to Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, God would repeat this Abrahamic covenant multiple times, that he would bless their children. But here's something interesting in verse 17, verses 7 and 8. What we see is a promise that God would specifically be their God. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me 
and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And then look at the end of verse 8, and I will be their God. And the idea here is that he would not just be their God, but as part of that, he would be in their presence, as we will see. Now, how was it that he was going to be in their presence? Well, that leads to the next point. We go from God's presence in the garden to God's presence in the temple and the tabernacle. God's presence in the temple and the tabernacle. And we're actually going to spend most of our time here on this point. I've got a lot of verses here, and then the final two points will be shorter. But God's presence in the temple and tabernacle, when you look at the book of Exodus, when you look at when Moses was called, you remember that Moses was kicked out. Well, actually, he fled from Egypt after having killed one of the slave drivers. He fled from Egypt and uh, for 40 years he was outside of Egypt before God called him from the from the burning bush. And then in Exodus chapter six, verses six and seven, this is what God tells Moses to say to the people. Listen to this. It's going to sound very familiar. He says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians." So we see this promise again that God was not only sending Moses to deliver the Israelites, but with the promise that God was going to be their God and he was going to make them his people. This is, in essence, restoring very similar to what we saw in the Garden of Eden, as we'll see. So as we move forward to the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, we'll see in Exodus chapter 40, really, when you think about the book of Exodus, you think about the, the, the great plagues, right? You think about the ten plagues. You think about the deliverance. You think about the parting of the Red Sea. You think about, the, about going to Mount Horeb and receiving the Ten Commandments. We saw Israel's rebellion along the way where they would grumble about not having enough water, not having enough food. About Then they created golden calves in rebellion against God. But really, many of the last several chapters of Exodus is focused upon the building of the tabernacle. After they have received the law, Moses received many specific instructions about the tabernacle. Why is that so important? Because that's where God would be. That's where his presence would be. That's where he would make known to the nation of Israel that I am with you. And when you look at Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 through 35, this is getting towards the end. Verse 33 says, He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. And then look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord was something that man could not look at face to face lest he die. It was what we call the Shekinah glory. The glory of the Lord would be in the tabernacle, and that was a manifestation of God to show that he was in there when they came to worship him, that he was in the presence of Israel. And wherever they traveled, that tabernacle would always be set up, and the 12 tribes would encamp around that tabernacle. 
And once per week, at least, they would come and worship the Lord at that tabernacle. But even following the book of Exodus, because we often, when we look at these first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we often forget that originally to the Israelites, this was one long book. This was simply the book of Moses. They didn't have these kinds of divisions. And so when you look at the beginning of Leviticus, Leviticus really just picks up where Exodus left off. In Leviticus chapter 1, and just looking at the first two verses, verse 1, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. Now, what's the significance of these verses? Because once the tabernacle has been set up, it is expected that they will come worship the Lord. And when they come worshiping the Lord, it is expected they will bring sacrifices. And now the Lord, right from Leviticus, is showing them these are the sacrifices you're going to bring. This is how you're going to bring them. These are the occasions that you're going to bring them. So this was them coming to the tabernacle to worship the Lord because they understood that was where the presence of the Lord dwelt. But when we fast forward from Leviticus, we now look forward to the Davidic covenant. And when we think about the Old Testament, there are three major covenants found in the Old Testament. There are actually more, but the three major covenants as it pertains to Israel, first would be the Abrahamic covenant. And we talked about that. We looked at that, the call of Abraham and the promise that he would make his descendants fruitful. And then there's the Mosaic Covenant. That was the Ten Commandments. We didn't look at that specifically, but that's implied as as God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he was going to come, bring them to the mountain, deliver the Mosaic Covenant. And really that tabernacle, that tabernacle was established as part of that Mosaic Covenant. But when we fast forward to the Davidic Covenant, we will see once again this emphasis upon this house of God. Looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, this is the start of it. This is where um, David has the idea that he wants to build a house for the Lord. Verse 1, now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. So this is the blessing of God upon David and Israel. Verse 2, that the king, this is David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So David is making a point. Look at this really nice house that I live in. And our Lord, the ark, is still in a a tent. And so Nathan already knows what he's getting at. That's why in verse 3, Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan understands what David's intentions are but God has a response going to the next set of verses starting in verse 4 2 Samuel 7 verse 4 but in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying this so God speaking to Nathan said go say to my servant David thus says the Lord are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt even to this day But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So in other words, the Lord has responded back to David. Even though Nathan said, okay, David, do whatever is coming to your heart. The Lord's saying, not so fast. You say to David, I never requested a house of cedar. I never requested that you do this. 
All right, but here's the thing. He's now going to give a promise to David. David, you wanted to do something for me. No, actually, I'm going to do something for you. Looking at 2 Samuel verses chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, this is what the Lord goes on to say. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is the great Davidic promise. And when you read through the Gospels, when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you hear references of people looking at Jesus saying, can this be the son of David? This is where it traces back to. They understand that this promise had not been fulfilled. Though initially, they thought Solomon was the fulfillment. But what's interesting in verse 13, he makes that point that this son, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, when we fast forward a little bit to David's son who ended up succeeding him on the throne, that would be who? Solomon. Solomon. That would be Solomon. And we go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 6 through 9. Solomon goes on to build the temple that David originally wanted to build. Solomon goes on to build it. And when you get to chapter eight, we're getting towards the end of this building. Now, this right here, there's a lot of details here. I'm really just going to look at verses six through seven. But this is coming to the completion of the building of this uh, this temple. Um, Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary, of the house to the most holy places to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. So there's the cherubim right there. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. Uh, Let me go ahead and just finish reading this. Verse 8, But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary that they could not be seen outside. They were there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And then to complete this, looking at verses 10 and 11, Once all this had been completed, we look at verses 10 and 11 and we read, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, because remember, they had moved the Ark of Covenant into the holy place. When they came from the holy place, guess what happened? The cloud filled the house of the Lord and verse 11, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This was proof that the temple that was intended to replace the tabernacle had now been endorsed by God. The glory of the Lord that had once filled the tent had now filled the temple that had just been constructed. And then going on, verses 12 to 13, this is Solomon's response. Solomon says, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. So this is a reference back to the Davidic covenant. Solomon is making these statements, but he continues on. Verses 17 through 19, he says this, 17 through 19. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. 
And then continuing on, verses 20 and 21, Solomon finishes up with this. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Therefore, I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon thought he was fulfilling the Davidic covenant. The nation of Israel who were there probably thought he had fulfilled the Davidic covenant. These statements show that he recognizes what the promises were from God to David, and he saw himself as being the son of David who had fulfilled that promise. But history shows that that was not true, because Solomon would turn his heart away from God. He would turn his heart towards many false gods, bring idolatry into the land, and because of him, the kingdom ended up getting split. That's why when you get to the Gospels and you hear people saying, can this be the son of David? It's because they know full well that Solomon was not the fulfillment and that they are still awaiting the fulfillment of that Davidic promise. And then going to Ezekiel. This is significant because Ezekiel, when we think about the exile, I think most of you understand the history of Israel in the Old Testament. They got into the promised land. They thought they would be in the promised land forever. But because of disobedience, they ended up getting exiled from the promised land. That was part of the curses of disobedience as defined in the Mosaic law, that they would be exiled. Ezekiel was the prophet in Babylon. Babylon would be the final place that they were exiled to. Specifically, the the kingdom of Judah would be um, exiled to Babylon. And Ezekiel was raised up as a prophet while in Babylon, and he has this vision with regards to the temple. So he's in Babylon while the exile is happening. There are still some people in Judah, in Jerusalem. Um, The temple is still intact, but he has these visions. Ezekiel chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne, appeared above them. Once again, reference to cherubim. Verse 3, Now the cherubim were standing at the right side of the temple when the man entered, and the cloud filled the inner court. That's clearly the presence of God. Verse 4, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So we see, once again, the references to cherubim, and the glory of God, and the presence of God, within the temple. But then look what happens as we continue to verse 18. Same chapter, Ezekiel 10, verse 18 reads, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted up their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So what we see here is that the glory of the Lord in verse 18 departed from the threshold of the temple. It had been in the temple. It left the temple with the cherubim. Now, these are real angels, not just the carvings that we're talking about. And then when you look on the very next chapter, Ezekiel 11, 22 to 23, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Verse 23, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is the east of the city. So the glory of the Lord, here's the point that I'm getting at. The glory of the Lord that had filled the holiest of holies in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving. Not just leaving the temple, but leaving the city. 
And it's not long after this that both the city and the temple are destroyed. You see the significance of the presence of God amongst his people? His presence showed that he was their God. They were his people. As long as he was with them, he would protect them. The moment he leaves is when he allows Babylon to come in and destroy the city, destroy the temple. That's why you have the book of Lamentation written by the prophet Jeremiah. That's him watching the temple burn down through, through his tears. But that leads us to the next section. We've talked about God's presence in the garden. We talked about God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple. But now that the glory of God had left, when would it return? Well, it would return in Christ. And so the next section is God's presence in Christ. God's presence in Christ. Now, before we actually go into the New Testament, take a look at Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. That's going to be showed up on the screen. These are going to be very familiar verses to you. But perhaps you haven't thought about it in light of God's presence as I have described them to you. Isaiah 7, 14. This is, and by the way, Isaiah was the prophet in Judah when the exile was just starting. He was the prophet when actually the, um, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was, was taken out by Assyria. And then shortly after that, Babylon would begin working on Judah. But Isaiah was the prophet at that time. And really the significance of that is that Israel was in deep rebellion. And Isaiah was witnessing all this. And so in Isaiah 7, 14, he's looking forward and he sees a prophecy of a child. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And then we look at chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Even the prophecies looking forward to the Messiah, even the name given in that prophecy in chapter 7 has the idea that God is with us. And now when we fast forward to the New Testament, when we look at the Gospel of John, of course, these are familiar verses. For some of you, these are probably memory verses. John 1.1 and John 1.14. John 1.1 is very familiar. In the beginning, John is using the words of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh. That's clearly talking about Jesus Christ being made incarnate. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14, when John says he dwelt, the Greek word is, it shares the same word as skenos. Skenos means tent or tabernacle. This is essentially the verb form of skenos. It's skenao. It's literally, he went around with us as, as a tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. John is actually referring him directly as the living tabernacle of, of God when he says he dwelt with us. And just to build on that, he didn't just say he dwelt among us, but what else did he say? And we saw his what? His glory. 
And if you think about the transfiguration of Christ, what was it that they see come forth from the face of Christ? They saw glory. They saw the glory of God that they would have connected to the tabernacle and the temple and the holiest of holy places. It was a revelation to them that this Jesus Christ that they had just confessed as the son, the, the living, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that they had confessed was God in human flesh as the glory of God was shining forth from his face. And that's exactly why John uses this language. He dwelt like a tabernacle and we saw his glory. And then even in chapter two, when we go to John chapter two, you remember when Jesus cleansed the tables, right? He went into the temple and he saw all these sellers and money changers and whatnot. He overturned the tables. He basically cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple. And in John chapter two, verse 18, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews were confused. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. By that time, the temple of Solomon had been replaced by what we call the temple of Herod. Herod uh, the Great had helped build that temple or at least sanctioned the building of that temple. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? Verse 21, this is John speaking, but he was speaking of the temple of what? His body. So when he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. See, from the time that the glory of God had left in the days of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God's presence had not been seen until the coming of Jesus Christ. And the disciples got to see that. The disciples got to witness that in Jesus Christ through his transfiguration. And you may even remember, well, I don't have the verses up there, but Matthew 16 is when Jesus said, On this rock I will build my what? Church. He being the chief cornerstone, saying, I will build, once again, building terminology, I will build my church. And his church is also known as the body of Christ. Amen. The body of Christ. And then it would be in the very next chapter, Matthew 17, that they would witness the transfiguration. But then now we fast forward to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It's a long prayer. Obviously, we won't go through all of it. We're just going to look at three verses here towards the end. John chapter 17, verses 22 to 24. And this is amazing what Jesus says in this prayer. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. With what purpose? That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. He actually stated to God the Father that I have given my glory to the disciples and by extension to the church. And that at a future time, when we are reunited with Jesus Christ, we will be able to see his glory unfiltered in heaven forever. But notice also in these verses, this strong emphasis upon unity, 
I've been talking about that as we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 11 to 22, the importance of unity, how God has created us to be one people. And God's presence, God, so God's presence among us is really the, the, what unites us together. It's God's presence. And that brings us to the fourth point. So we have talked about God's presence in the garden, God's presence in the tabernacle and temple. And now we get to the fourth point, God's presence in eternity. God's presence in eternity. And you look at Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. This is what's going to happen in the future. When the earth and the heavens have been, have been destroyed and, and recreated, we have the new earth and we have the new heaven. And starting in Revelation 21, verse 1, John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And then verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he, that being God, will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This brothers and sisters, is what we're looking forward to. This is the blissful eternity that far surpasses anything we've ever experienced in this life. I know in the summertime, since I started here in the summer, right, I started here during the hottest time of the year, I know that many of you go on vacations, and I didn't take it personally. Because I was told that during the summer times, people like to leave the valley to try to escape the heat. And I saw the pictures on Facebook. I saw some of the pictures of where you were going, and I was jealous. Went to some beautiful places. Saw some of God's creation, the mountains. Uh, I I saw rivers. I saw lakes. I saw oceans. I, I saw nature the way God had created nature to be. Can I tell you that's going to pale? That, that's going to be nothing compared to what we will have in heaven. Amen. And we will have it for all of eternity. But what we see is that the overriding reality, what makes heaven heaven, what makes that eternity so glorious, what makes that future so grand in its scale, what makes it so far beyond anything that we can possibly imagine, anything that we've ever seen, anything that we've ever heard, what makes it so great is the overriding presence of God amongst us as our God and we as his people. In heaven, that is where the final temple of God is. That is where we will be for all of eternity. But for the present today, for the present time today, where does that leave us today? Because God was in Christ clearly, and Christ we know was God in human flesh. And God is there in the future when we're up there in heaven. But as for today, when we take a look at passages like Ephesians, we see, we are reminded what Paul said, that we are being built into a temple of God, into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And this is a theme that not only Paul would would harp upon, he mentioned it also in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 verse 5, but also Peter. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. This is what Peter says. 
and coming to him. He's talking about you coming to him, Jesus Christ, coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Remember, Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone. He was rejected by the main builders. But that stone which the builders rejected ended up becoming the chief cornerstone. That's the reference Peter is making here. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Look at verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as what? A spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If anyone today wants to see the glory of God, it is at any church where God's people truly gather together. And if they want to see the glory of God, the glory of God is witnessed through our unity. It is witnessed through our love for one another. It is witnessed through our spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Where we come to worship the Lord, we offer up our life as a living sacrifice. And we seek to love one another like no non-believer could. This is the beauty of being a part of the church. This is a beauty of, of being called as God's people. That we today, what we have witnessed in the Old Testament, is made, is made manifest today through the church. And the church today is really a foreshadowing of the reality that will be forever in heaven. We are the temple of God. But as we return back to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Let's go ahead and read this again, having seen all those verses. And I know those were a lot of verses, but I trust that was profitable. I trust that you have seen the presence of God in a way that you had not seen before. And you saw it as testified clearly by Scripture itself. When we took a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul concludes this section with this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Do you see the richness of Paul's theology now? Can you see the continuing picture of the presence of God amongst God's people that Paul is painting here with these, this passage? That he is saying that you as the church, I mean, and in this passage, he had previously talked about the enmity that existed between us and God. The enmity that existed between us and other people groups. And how Jesus Christ took all of that away. On the cross, he paid the price needed to pay for your sins. On the cross, he took away the enmity that we were at against God. That previously we were lost in our, our, in our trespasses and sins. That we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, following after the course of this world. That we were following after the lusts and desires of our flesh. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He made us alive together in Christ. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's the power of God working through us. The power of God not just to save us, not just to rescue us from a depravity that we can never rescue ourselves from, not just to give us a heart to replace our heart of stone, that we would have a heart of flesh so that we can obey him, 
but it's that we would be called together as a people of God, that we would be the living embodiment of the temple of God. The temple of God is no longer a building. The temple of God is no longer a place that you go to where only the high priest goes to the holiest of holies. Jesus Christ today is in the holiest of holies, and we access God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful reality. And for each one of you here in the audience, each one of you here this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you right now that you are not a part of the temple of God. You are not a part of the temple of God because you are at enmity against God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You can just look back at your life and you know that you have committed sins. You have committed sins against God. You have committed sins against your family, against loved ones, against friends, in your thoughts, in your actions and deeds. You may think to yourself, well, I'm not as bad as some people. The problem is God in his justice and righteousness has to issue condemnation upon any who are guilty of sin. The only way you can find salvation, the only way that you can be able to look forward to this eternity with God in heaven and be able to witness his glory and a reality that's far greater than anything that we have here on this earth. The only way that that is possible is to repent of your sins and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It's to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. To forsake your sins. And when I say repent, that means you forsake your prior way of living. That you are now no longer of the world, but now you belong to the people of God. That you are part of the temple of God. And as has been the case throughout the scriptures, the people of God and the temple of God were always meant to be holy. They were always meant to be separated. They were always meant to look different from the rest of the world. To the glory of God. And for the rest of us, I think of Psalm 122, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll read that to you. David says this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You know, that heart of David, it not only reflects the heart of a man who enjoys being at the temple worshiping God. But here he says, I was glad when they said to me, he rejoices when the people of God want to go there with him. He rejoices at the opportunity to be with God's people, worshiping God together. Can you see the blessed privilege that we have to be a part of the church? Even to be here this morning. Your privilege is not to listen to me. That's not the privilege. I, I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a, you know, I'll blab my mouth all day. The privilege we have here together is that we can worship the Lord. And that we can read his word. Now, just as an application point, and I know um, we're getting close to really the end of our time, but as we consider the holidays that are coming up, live in light of this reality that you are the temple of God. Halloween is right around the corner. You know, as people of God, as part of the temple of God, we want to do things that glorify God. We want to show ourselves to be different from the rest of the world. Take that into account in how you participate in some of the events that are coming up. Take that into consideration in terms of how you decide to let your children dress up. Are they glorifying God or are they glorifying darkness? And even beyond that, as we look forward to Thanksgiving, we look forward to Christmas. Don't celebrate those things the way the secular world celebrates them. Celebrate them with Thanksgiving, true Thanksgiving to God for what he has done. Celebrate them with a remembrance of Jesus Christ and why he came. 
celebrate them with the opportunity that we can share God with those who are lost and help bring them to salvation that they too may become part of this blessed, wonderful temple of the Lord. And with that, let us pray.